Welcome to the Carl Bart Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle. And my guest today is Dr. Martin Westerholm. Dr. Westerholm holds a PhD from the University of Aberdeen. He's a senior lecturer at the University of Gothenburg. And he's the author of The Ordering of the Christian Mind, Karl Barth and Theological Rationality. Dr. Westrom, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks, Corey. It's great to continually be having these conversations with Aberdeen PhDs that have jobs in academia. It gives me a little hope for my future, but, you know, we'll see. My best wishes. For, uh, <laughs> it is a difficult fight for everyone, and I can only wish you the best. Well, I, I appreciate that. So you did University of Aberdeen for your doctoral research. I'm wondering, I, I guess, what was that journey like? What took you to Aberdeen? Um, how did you get interested in, in Karl Barth and this question of theological rationality? What was that like? Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose the interest in Barth predated and was the cause of the decision to go to Aberdeen. Uh, Though it wasn't an interest that was grounded in knowledge in any meaningful sense. Uh, my undergraduate work was in philosophy, and I made a kind of half turn towards theology in a master's uh, dissertation on Augustine. But I was beginning doctoral work with very limited background in theology itself. But what I had heard was two or three people whom I respect say that you can't understand anything about modern theology without understanding Karl Barth. And so I thought, well, I suppose I should make an effort to understand Karl Barth then. So I decided that I would work on Barth uh, or focus on Barth for my doctoral work without having a great deal of background in the area. Uh, and at that point, it became a matter of finding a suitable place for a project on Barth. Um, living in the UK was attractive both to my wife and to me. And I suppose from my background in philosophy, I mean, one set of questions that I, I had always been interested in was in the relation between kind of epistemology and ethics, hmm. you know, what we know, what we can know, and then what we do and what we think of as uh, good and right things to do. So that was a set of questions that I was loosely interested in, and, and Aberdeen became compelling as a destination, as a place for studying BART, because uh, John Webster, who became my supervisor there, was not only an eminent BART scholar, but had also given a construal of BART's work that gave a really interesting kind of version of how epistemology and ethics relate to each other. He had developed a reading of BART's ethics as, as what he called the kind of moral ontology, where our descriptions of the world and our descriptions of, uh, you know, Christian truth claims Kind of describe the moral space in which we live. So this provided a really interesting way to think about the kind of intersection between epistemology and ethics. Uh, and it, it drew me to John as a person who was thinking about these questions in interesting ways. Uh, and in one sense, that intersection remains central to my work. Uh, what I end up treating loosely as a question of theological rationality is a question that I think Bart in important ways kind of reframes for us and tells us that actually that epistemological question, a question kind of about our knowledge, actually has to be approached in moral or ethical terms. It's not a question that we can divorce from moral questions about how we kind of respond to God, relate to each other, and so on. Hmm. Yeah. I guess when, when you come over here to Aberdeen, you, you said you're interested in studying BART, and, and you're studying under John Webster. 
Is there like a, a turning point, like a, a spark of theological rationality? This is what I'm going for. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm interested as being a current PhD student and seeing people's projects around me sort of like, oh, new question and, and sort of shift and take form. Um, yeah. Did you sort of come after you got here and sort of worked towards this sort of end conclusion of what you wanted to write on? Or did that question sort of come pretty quickly when you got here? No, the question was very slow to come. In fact, I would say that I probably had most of my dissertation written before I really knew what the question was. <laughs> and I, from conversations with others, I'm not sure that experience is all that unusual. Often you have to write totally. quite a bit in order to figure out really what the question is. Um, no, I mean, the account I just gave of kind of being interested in epistemology and ethics from philosophy and then getting interested in Bart and getting interested in John Webster as a reader of Bart. I mean, it makes it sound like it's very linear and coherent, but... Um, really my topic emerged kind of accidentally and wasn't at all what i had in mind when i began um i mean you will know when you that when you apply to a phd program you have to write a kind of research proposal where you say you know this is what i want to research and it's a way for a supervisor to gauge the level at which you're working and whether your interests really match the supervisor's interest and so on but i remember in my first meeting with john he asked about my research proposal and i was just kind of honest and said, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote that for purposes of the application, but it's not anything that I'm wedded to. In fact, you know, now I wrote it five or six months ago. I'm not really sure I have much interest in that at all. And I said to him, you know, I'm coming with somewhat limited background in theology. What I'd really like to do, and tell me what you think about this, what I'd really like to do is to just take much of the first year and read the church dogmatics and just try to use that as an entree into theology as a, as a way to school myself. And John, with patience and wisdom, said, yeah, fine, sure, do that. And so uh, I did. The problem that I then found was that I got to the end not feeling all that much the wiser, more educated in some sense, but feeling utterly lost, feeling completely overwhelmed by the scope of what I had read and so on, and no closer to any sense of what I wanted to work on. And what I ended up doing kind of in desperation and panic was going back to a few of Bart's short earlier texts, just dipping in them, looking for something to latch onto, and found pretty quickly that there were really interesting moves that happened in some of Bart's earlier texts in the way that he was reading Paul and the way that he was appropriating Anselm and so on. And they were the they were things the things that he were doing were things that did kind of resonate with my interests in ethics and epistemology and the, the relation between the two and so on. And so I mean, towards the end of my first year, we were having, we had a post-grad conference just amongst the students at Aberdeen where we were all meant to present a paper. So I had to write something for that. And not knowing what else to write on, I dashed something off quickly about some of these early texts. And it turns out that John, you know, thought highly of the text and thought there was really something there. Hmm. And so I wrote a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And, but it was probably not until I had three quarters of the thing written at any rate that I really knew what the question was. And then it was a matter of, finishing a draft and then going back through the whole thing and tying it together as a coherent whole around what what the question ended up being well i guess that's um I, i'm sure i know quite a few phd students including myself who are really encouraged by that because you know all the time especially during that first year you're sort of revisiting the question thinking is this the right one so um that's, yeah. that's good news and encouragement um I want to jump into your book. You obviously your book is about theological rationality and ordering of Christian thought. And I guess I'm wondering for the layperson, let's say someone who is new to Bart, new to theological studies at all, um, I guess if you could 
define theological rationality slash the order of Christian thought? Um, like, what is it, and uh, should it be pursued? Why should it be pursued? Are, are there like biblical merits, theological merits for, for for the case before we jump into like what Bart would say about this? So, what is theological rationality? Yeah. <laughs> how long are you? How long are you intending for this interview to run for? Me? <laughs> <laughs> pardon me sorry i i should say as a word of apology to the listeners as i said to Corey just before we began that it is it is high pollen season here in sweden and my throat is coated with the uh pollen that fills the air in sweden at this point so i'm sorry that my voice is i'm sorry that i sound like a lounge singer who's been inhaling secondhand smoke for decades <laughs> at this point i'm gonna try not to be too hoarse or to have my voice crack too much but anyway here we are all that as a way of delaying an answer to the question, what is theological rationality? Um, well, I suppose there are two things to be said, or, or kind of two topics that we should talk around. I think in the first place, it's probably helpful to, to just talk broadly about what we usually mean when we talk about the question of rationality. Hmm. But then in terms of thinking about Bart's work, I think we probably have to reflect a little bit on how he inverts the question or flips it on its head, as it were. Because in one sense, he thinks that theology inevitably goes astray if it takes up the question of rationality on the terms on which it's usually understood. Um, so, I mean, as a starting point, what do we usually mean when we talk about rationality or indeed about theological rationality? Um... I mean, you, when we're interested in rationality, we're interested broadly in kind of good knowing. And that is, we're interested in <clears throat> not only in asking kind of what is true, but how do we know that it's true? And can we explain its truth, or can we explain the truth of something we know to somebody else uh, in a way that is compelling and, and clear to them and allows them to recognize the same things about the world? So if you stop and think about it, I mean, I think we all realize that there are lots of things we take as true without really being able to good, give good explanations of why we take them as true or be, being able to give particularly good explanations of their truth. Um, I mean, I take it as true that E equals MC squared, and I take it as true that spinach is good for me. But in both cases, I'm taking somebody else's word for these things. Mm -hmm. I don't myself have any meaningful understanding of what it means to say that E equals MC squared. And I'm not a nutritionist. I can't give you a biological explanation for why spinach is good for me, nor am I a sufficiently diligent eater of my vegetables to have empirically <laughs> tested the fact that spinach is good for me. So these are things that I, I can accept as true. I can say that they're true, but I don't have especially good reasons other than taking someone's word for it for thinking that they are true. And I can't explain their truth in any meaningful sort of way. And what that means is that I'm kind of an unreliable witness to the truth of these things. Other people should not take my word for it. They should go find a scientist and a nutritionist and take their word for it. And so when we ask the question of rationality, we're interested in the difference between an unreliable and a reliable knower of what is true. We're interested in whether we know things that are true in ways that make us reliable witnesses to their truth. So, you know, we're interested, for instance, in the kind of scientific experiments that you can do to validate the truth of things. Or we're interested in the kind of processes of education that can make us reliable judges of whether a particular poem is good or not, or a particular work of literature has the meaning that people think that it has 
or not. So on a general level, the question of rationality is about digging down into the foundations of our knowledge of truth. Why do we think that something is true? What are good ways to know that something is true? And what are kind of bad ways to know? Or what are sort of, yeah, less convincing reasons for taking something as true? Now, the issue when we turn to Bart is that he thinks uh, well, so and so and let me say very broadly then, I mean, that's what we think of when we think about rationality generally. And when we think about theological rationality, broadly, we could think about the same sort of question. You know, we might take as true that Christ is risen from the dead, God forgives sinners, etc., etc. But how do we know that these things are true? What basis do we have for taking them as true? How could we explain their truth to others in ways that make, might make us reliable witnesses to them and so on? A theological account of rationality can look a lot like a general philosophical account of rationality. But part of what's important about Barthes' work is that he thinks that the question needs to be reframed entirely. He thinks that if we approach the work of theology with that kind of question of rationality in mind, then inevitably we are going to distort uh, Christian teaching and we're going to end up with distorted theological understanding. So why does he think that that's the case? Um, so broadly, an account of rationality tries to examine the kind of foundations of our grasp of the truth. And in the modern period, it has involved trying to find those foundations broadly in something that human knowers are doing and something that we do whether it's a particular kind of experiment that we do in the sciences, whether it's a particular kind of experience that might validate some kind of psychological truth, whether it's a particular kind of moral argument that tries to draw out the truth of a moral claim. We look to ourselves to find the foundations for our truths. And Barth thinks that if we get into the business of playing that game, we are inevitably going to distort theological truth claims. So let's take two examples for the sake of trying to keep this from being too abstract. Um, there are two claims that theologians or Christians generally would take as true that Barth think present us with particular kind of epistemological difficulties or particular difficulties when we think about questions of reason. One is simply the claim that God is Lord or that God is sovereign. And the other is the claim that Justification is by grace alone, that it isn't a product of kind of human labor or human merit. Bart says, okay, as Christians, we take these things as true. But then if we engage in the kind of classical project of an account of reason, if we try to dig into the foundations of these things, if we try to give a, a foundation to our grasp of the truth of these things, on modern terms, that will mean turning to some aspect of our experience, uh, perhaps some aspect of our moral consciousness, perhaps some aspect of historical inquiry, looking at what's happening in the first century or whatever, and to trying to use that as a foundation for these claims. But when we do that, Bart says, in effect, we are taking control of those claims. We are making ourselves the masters of them. If I say God is Lord as a truth claim, 
But I then say, okay, but now I have to give a kind of foundation to this claim. I have to find a kind of merit for that claim in my own experience or in my own moral consciousness or something. Then I'm going to turn to myself as a foundation or as an anchor that makes this certain for me. And in effect, I become the master in the relationship. I say God is Lord, but then I try to anchor that claim in some aspect of my own life, in some aspect of my experience, or some aspect of my moral consciousness, whatever. And in effect, I become the Lord. So what Bart is most interested in, what Bart is most worried about when he turns to questions of reason, is how we can say the sorts of things that Christians say without subtly subverting the truth of what we're saying. On classical terms, the, t the question of reason is the question of giving foundations for our truth claims. But on Bart's terms, the question isn't how can we give foundations to our truth claims. On Bart's terms, the question is how can we think about these truth claims in ways that don't subvert their truth. In trying to give them foundations, do we end up, he wonders, undermining there's a kind of architectural metaphor dancing around here somewhere that you, you dig down to make a foundation, but on Bart's terms, once you start digging down, you actually end up undermining. So his worry is that the question of reason um, asked on kind of conventional modern terms ends up subverting the very truth claims that Christians want to make. And so for him, the fundamental question of reason isn't the question of finding foundations for truth claims. It's a question of how we can speak, how we can think, indeed, how we can act in ways that comport with the truth of what we think, that comport with the truth of the claim that God is Lord, the justification is by grace alone, and so on. Wow. That was perhaps a long and somewhat abstract. That was, that, that was perfect. Um, I, I have a follow-up question that I didn't have planned, but I'm sort of just trying to work it through you know, I told you all fair, this is, this is mainly a selfish endeavor for me to really, really grasp all of these concepts and have experts explain them to me <laughs> um, through conversation. So the, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the concept of justification by grace. Um, you mentioned pointing to historical reality as a, as an, a way to kind of master these things. I think in the past, my inclination would be justification by grace and someone said how, how like how do you know that that sort of rational account my first move i think in my mind would, would be to go to some sort of historical reality of i think jesus literally rose from the dead i think that he said he said these things that he's god he you know he has the ability to make us right and he's done so Th those sorts of like historical appeals so i'm wondering where where in there have I been getting it wrong I guess but uh, where how is that uh tasting taking mastery by pointing I guess to this sort of historical reality yeah um I wish there were a simple answer to that question that wouldn't lead into an answer as long as the one I just gave um I got time <laughs> fair enough um so the answer has to do very concretely with Bart's understanding of what it means to study history, hmm. which is very much conditioned by his own time and place in, uh, in intellectual history. Um, through the 19th and into the 20th century, 
one thing that theologians did to try to make theology a kind of respectable university discipline, uh, you know, a kind of discipline that can stand alongside the other hard sciences, as it were, and validate its claims, is to say that um, that theology functions basically as an inquiry into history. It seeks out the objective truth of what Jesus did and did not do, and that that becomes the foundation of theological teaching. The, pro the problem from Barth's perspective is that it did so by accepting the rules that had been set for the study of history within the modern university. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, so there, there's famous work by a theologian named Ernst Trolch, who, who was one who adopted a kind of historical approach to the study of Christianity. And he wrote an, a couple of famous texts explaining the core assumptions of historical study. What principles and rules do you have to follow to study something historically? Any, I don't remember, there were four or five of them, maybe. Um, but there were two in particular that seemed problematic from Bart's perspective. The first is that Trolch thinks that anything that you study historically has to exist in a coherent causal sequence with everything else in history. Which is you to say that you have to be able to show that cause leads to cause. I mean, cause leads to effect, which is the cause of something else, which is the cause of something else, which is the cause of something else. Hmm. And it's by following this kind of unbroken chain of causation that you can be sure that you're finding things that are true. If there are breaks in the chain, then it, your knowledge suddenly becomes unreliable. But if it looks like it all fits together, then that's a really good sign that you're that you're on to something. And then Trolch's other principle that Bart really objected to was a kind of principle of analogy which is that uh, historical events are loosely to be understood in analogy with each other, by way of analogy with each other. So if you, if you find two different events, both of which have kind of, in, both of which you have kind of incomplete explanations of, you can help to kind of fill out the explanations of them by making analogies with other historical events. So if one army lays siege to a city and sacks it, um, the particular account of this event you have may not be especially detailed, but you can probably fill out what was involved by analogy with other stories that you have about what it is for an army to lay siege to a city and to sack it. Mm -hmm. So for Trolch to study history meant accepting these rules for what it means to look at history. And Bart said, wait a minute, when we look at the Bible, we just cannot allow these rules to apply to our study of what happens there. When, for instance, God raises Christ from the dead, there is a break in the historical chain of causation. Hmm. Trolch wants to say that cause leads to effect, which is the cause of the next event and the next event and the next event. But Bart says here there just has to be an unqualified break in the chain of causation because the chain of historical causation that we know leaves no space for someone to be raised from the dead. This is an interruptive act that functions according to a cause that exists outside of history. God is not one cause in history alongside other causes. God is a completely different kind of cause that in, in the resurrection reaches in and interrupts the causal chain of history. And similarly, Bart says, uh, when we talk, for instance, about the resurrection, we have to be understand that we're talking about an event that has no analogy to anything else that happens. This is qualitatively different from everything else that happens in history. It's a fundamental interruption of the logic of history. So Bart's worry about the kind of historical study that you would want to do to back up the truth of justification. Okay, I mean, I don't, uh, yeah, his, his worry is, okay, but what does it mean to study history? What rules are you mm -hmm. following in inquiring into history? Wow. 
And so I realize, let me just say one more thing. Um, I mean, Bart ends up, so what Bart says is that the resurrection is, an, is a kind of unhistorical event. And there's a, there's a kind of theological instinct that looks at Bart saying the resurrection is an unhistorical event and thinks, oh, wait a minute, he's denying the resurrection or he's saying that it didn't happen or something like that. Right. Well, that isn't the point at all. Uh, Bart thinks there is nothing more real in the cosmos than the resurrection, that the re resurrection is an important sense, the measure of what is real. What he means in saying that it's an unhistorical event is that you can't study it with the tools of history the way you can study anything else that happens. It's qualitatively different from everything else that exists within the sweep of history as we know it. So in that sense, it's a kind of unhistorical event, totally different from everything else that we know. Wow. Thank you for that. That was mind-blowing. Um, I'll be thinking about that for, for weeks, um, if not longer. Um, let's get back into your book, though. You uh, you have this section about uh, the Apostle Paul and... Um, his description of the problem of ordering thoughts of theological rationality. I'm wondering if you could sort of lay out what, how, how does Paul address this issue? How does Paul address this issue? Um, I think there are two things to be said about that in relation to Bart in particular. Um, the first is the first involves taking Paul on his own terms and I think actually offering a kind of corrective to Bart's reading. In terms of how Paul approaches questions of the kind of ordering of the mind, um, I mean, my own sense is that Paul approaches the question as an extension of a kind of theology of sanctification. When Paul mm -hmm. talks about the ordering of the mind, I mean, the kind of passages that come to mind for me are things like his instruction to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, uh, to to put on the mind of Christ, to grow in a kind of spiritual wisdom, uh, the, the kind of thing that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 2, for instance. My sense is that when Paul talks about it, what he thinks of most naturally is a process of our minds becoming conformed to Christ and the truth of Christ, mm -hmm. of a kind of movement of sanctification, of growth and spiritual maturity, renewal of the mind, and so on. And that point is important in relation to Bart because um, Bart, I'm trying to think about how strong a claim I want to make here. Um, I think it is fair to say that Bart cheats in his exegesis to make those ideas disappear. In the early period of his work, through the 1920s in particular, before he has really begun his mature dogmatic project, in some of the exegetical texts that I focus on most concretely. Um, I mean, Bart, through that period in particular, is very nervous about ideas of kind of sanctification, spiritual growth, and so on. Um, for the sake of trying to keep at least one answer somewhat short, maybe we'll, uh, we'll not go into why at this point. Uh, but I think the first thing to be said in terms of your question about um, how does Paul think about this question, my own sense is that Paul thinks about the question in terms of a kind of movement of sanctification. And that one thing that's interesting about Bart is that he doesn't like that idea and kind of tries to make it disappear. He, in, in the way that he interprets 1 Corinthians 2, for instance, he kind of cheats and reads it in relation to 1 Corinthians 4 in a way that doesn't really work for the sake of trying to make it look like there's no kind of growth and spiritual maturity or anything like that. Um, so the second thing then to be said about kind of how Paul thinks about it 
is really a comment about how Bart thinks that Paul thinks about it. In effect, I mean, what am I saying in my book that Bart learns from Paul in terms of the ordering of the Christian mind? Um, and I think what's important there may be a kind of inversion that's parallel to the inversion I talked about in relation to your earlier question about just kind of what reason is. Um, so you asked what reason is, and I said that broadly the question of reason is the question of kind of giving foundations, uh, reasons for our truth claims in a way that make them reliable. And again, kind of broadly, loosely in the modern period, what happens is that people come to think that to give foundations for our truth claims is um, to find reasons within ourselves or to use ourselves as uh, the criterion for accepting particular truth claims. So, I mean, in the in the classical tradition, there was no real objection to the fact that most of what we know, we know through authority. Mm -hmm. uh, Aristotle just accepted the fact that most of what we know, we take other people's word for it. Augustine said that, um, you know, really the job of the reasonable person is to learn to distinguish between good and bad authorities. That we, we learn most of what we know that way anyway, so let's just learn to distinguish reliable and unreliable narrators. But in the modern period, people get really worried about accepting things uh, on authority. I mean, Immanuel Kant very famously says that the essence of enlightenment is having the courage to think for yourself. And so you're supposed to turn to your own experience. You're supposed to turn to kind of rational and moral principles that you find within yourself for the sake of validating things. And that means that like the subjects that we are become the measure of truth. If we're going to accept that Christ was raised from the dead, if we're going to accept that justification is by grace, then we have to find experiences within ourselves or moral principles within ourselves that allow us to, to, that, to validate these things, allow us to accept them as true. But what Bart finds in Paul is a way of just inverting that picture. He says, in effect, I mean, one of the things that really interests him in Paul's work is Paul's contrast between the kind of old subject who lives under the reign of sin and the new subject that is a creation of God's grace. And in effect, he said, the, the subjects that we are in time, the person that you are sitting there talking to me with all the things that are going through your head as I'm talking, the subject that I am as the person sitting here in time with all the words that are coming out of my mouth, these are the old subjects that we are. And when modern thinkers tell you to validate truth claims on the basis of your experience or your moral principles or your inquiry into history or whatever, what they're telling you to do is to, to take the old person, the sinful person, as the measure of truth. But Bart says that when Paul introduces us to the idea that there is this new subject, a new creation in Christ, what Paul is doing is showing us the subject who should really be the center of our thinking. Bart says that when Paul thinks about the ordering of thought, what Paul is trying to get us to do is to see that we shouldn't think out of a center in our empirical selves, the selves that we are in time, the selves that we are sitting here today. What we should do is think out of a center in the eschatological subject, that is the new creature, the one hidden in Christ with God. Um, and for Bart, this is just a kind of complete 
paradigm shift that turns the entire modern project on its head. He says, what Paul is doing is showing us that we cannot play the modern game. We cannot play the game of trying to validate truth claims on the basis of our experiences and so on, because those are the experiences of the old subject. We cannot cut theological truth claims to that cloth. What we have to do is to think out of a center in the new subject, the new creation in Christ. So it's that inversion that Bart thinks is central to Paul's account of the ordering of Christian thought. How does uh, sin play into all of this? Uh, surely it affects cognition in some sense. So how does sin relate to rationality and ordering of Christian thought? Yeah. Um, I mean, in short, sin is the rupture and destruction of our capacity for well-ordered thought. Sin is the reason that when we say God is Lord, we end up kind of inverting that into an assertion of our own lordship in the very way that we think. Um, one way that other scholars have characterized Bart's work and Bart's thinking about theological reason in particular is to say that it's, it's an application of a Reformation theology of justification to epistemological questions. And what that means is that just as a Reformation theology of justification says that human beings on their own terms cannot earn salvation, cannot merit grace, so human beings on their own terms, when we think about questions of knowledge, we can't know God on our own terms. We can't merit knowledge of God through, uh, you know, loving our neighbors or whatever. Sin is the rupture of our capacity to know God. Sin is the rupture of, of our capacity to have a well-ordered mind, just as sin is the rupture of our capacity to save ourselves. Um, yeah. That's great. Um, so this coming October, I, I'm planning on attending the the Dutch BART conference that is covering the um, Fides Quarens Intellectum, the FQI. Um, so I, I haven't read it. Um, but I'm looking forward to it, especially uh, my PhD supervisor, Professor Phil Ziegler. Um, he basically says that in Dutch conferences, you kind of read the book over again together in a room. Um, even in the schedule, it has a whole bunch of reading times with your group, which I'm looking forward to. So I'm looking forward to, I'll, I'll give it my best go before I get there, but also just sitting next to Phil and having him <laughs> reading over his shoulder and asking him a bunch of questions. But um, so as I'm starting to read this and prep for this uh, conference, I have a few questions about this because you, your your book touches on FQI pretty, um, pretty substantially. Uh, so the first one would be, what does uh, FQI, at what point does it come into the picture as far as Bart's theological development? Does it play any significant roles there? Um, kind of can can have you kind of place it in history of what it what it means for for Bart along the way? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and it's one that um, I'm not sure how confidently I feel speak. Uh, I'm not sure how confidently I, how confident I feel speaking to it. Hmm. Um, in part, actually, just because. I'm becoming increasingly suspicious of kind of developmental accounts of, of different thinkers work as, as I reflect on how much, uh, 
you know, my own thinking and other people whom I know, how much their thinking changes from month to month and year to year and so on. The kind of developmental work that scholars do where, you know, you take one text from one year, skip ahead two years and find another text and say, well, here's the kind of link between the two. And if you stop and think about it, two years is an awful long time and our thinking can change. I mean, totally. any number of thoughts can go through our heads over the space of two years. And I tend to think that developmental accounts are a little bit overly neat and and simplified. But I suppose with that qualifier in place, let me just sin boldly and offer my own overly neat, overly simplified understanding of um, where this book on Anselm, FQI, as it tends to be put in brief, kind of fits within Bart's thinking. Um, so, I mean, very loosely, I mean, in, through the late 1910s into the 1920s, Bart goes through uh, a series of shifts in his thinking, primarily by way of study of Paul. They cause him to break from a lot of the ideas that he had received through his education. In the early 1920s, he took up university teaching and for a number of years uh, was working very, very, very hard to fill out his own education and tr to try to fill out the convictions that he had begun to develop through his reading of Paul. Paul had given him a set of theological instincts, but you know, it's not clear how filled out they were. And over the course of a number of years, uh, Bart wrote a great deal, lectured a great deal on his way towards theological maturity. He first, or he attempted the first volume of a new work of systematic theology in 1927. And it's important that in that work, he explicitly takes up the question of what it means for faith to seek understanding. And one way to think about why that question is important for him is to say that what Paul did for him primarily is to teach him a new way to think about faith. The theology on which he had been schooled from the 19th century had, had taught him to think of faith primarily in terms of human experiences and activities. And indeed, as the way in which God is present to us, and therefore the way that we can study God. Through the 19th century, uh, across Protestant theology in particular, uh, there, was a, there was an enormous aversion to anything that looked like speculation or anything that looked like a kind of metaphysical abstraction uh, that involved offering claims outside of the concrete empirical world that we can see around us. Theologians thought that theology can't be in the business of saying things that look speculative. It can't be in the business of saying things that look abstract. If it's going to count as good human knowing, it has to be anchored in attention to some kind of concrete reality. And they thought faith was the kind of concrete reality, or one of the concrete realities that you could look at. I mean, you could also look for some at moral principles or historical inquiry. Or, um, but faith was one popular alternative. And so there was this sense that, I mean, faith is a real human experience or a real human activity. And it's the thing that we should study for the sake of studying God, because it's the form in which kind of relation to God is present to us. But Barth thought that Paul had taught him a whole new way of thinking about faith, a way that got him out of this kind of human-centered picture entirely, where, we're, where what we're studying is a form of human activity or a form of human experience. Bard thought that Paul had taught him to think of faith as um, 
I mean, a, a divine gift in the first instance, but also a reality that was properly understood as belonging to the eschatological subject, the new creature in Christ, and not the old kind of subjects that we remain in time. And so one very concrete question for Bart, once he had rethought faith, was, okay, but what does it mean for faith to move to understanding? Anselm very famously describes the work of theology as kind of faith-seeking understanding. And this is a way of, of presenting the work of theology that has been extraordinarily common since then, that the, the work of theology involves faith-seeking its understanding. But Bart realized that if he's reimagined the nature of faith, then he also has to reimagine what it means for faith to move to understanding. He has to reimagine the movement to understanding that corresponds to this particular kind of faith. So in 1927, in his first attempt at a systematic theology, he gave an account of um, what it means for faith as he understood it to move to understanding. The problem was that it wasn't an especially good account. In fact, there was no real substance to it. At the end of the day, it involved a kind of hand-waving gesture towards Ansel and saying like, that guy over there did a thing sort of like this and I'm just doing the same thing, so let's get on our way. There was no real coherence to the explanation and reviewers of his book picked up on this. Uh, there were two reviewers who in reviews of his book said this is a decisive weakness of this project. Bart gives us this energetic, enthusiastic, spiritually compelling vision of faith, but he can't say anything coherent about what this, about how this kind of faith moves to understanding. In the end, he reveals that actually his project is just an exercise in a kind of spiritual enthusiasm because this kind of faith can't give any substance to itself. There were then a couple of people who responded <clears throat> kind of in Bart's defense, saying there's more going on here. And something of a lively debate about what it means for faith to move to understanding developed. And I think Bart's book on Anselm is best understood as Bart's own contribution to that debate. I think he saw these texts being written out there. I think he recognized that um, his invocation of Anselm in his 1927 attempt at a systematic theology had been a kind of exercise in hand-waving that didn't have a lot of substance to it. So he turned to much more detailed study of Anselm in an attempt to explain how his vision of faith can begin to move towards understanding. And in that sense, you can kind of see the text as programmatic insofar as he works out what it means for faith on his reimagined Pauline terms to begin to fill itself out, to begin to give itself content. Hmm. Now, wow. I think that probably is a little bit too neat a story. I don't know if there really are dramatic differences between the 1927 attempt at a systematic theology and then when Bart begins the church dogmatics in the early 1930s again. Just how different those texts really are is a fair question, but that's at least the neat, a, a neat story that one could tell. <laughs> awesome. So how does, how does Anselm, I guess, influence Bart's approach? Uh, what, what is that move from faith to understanding if, if faith is in the eschatological subject? What does understanding mean? Yeah. Um, so on the terms of a kind of conventional account of rationality, the movement to understanding would involve a movement into a grasp of the foundations of this truth, the sort of thing that I've talked about earlier. But again, Bart wants to move away from that. Understanding can't involve, or at least it can't directly involve, a kind of dive into the foundations of this truth. So what Bart talks about instead is a kind of, an inquiry into what he calls the range of truth. We could also think of this as the kind of depth of truth. 
And in effect, what he says is the movement from faith to understanding is the movement from kind of accepting that something is true in the way that I accept that, you know, I mean, any number of things, that the sky is blue, that my family's car is blue, uh, that justification is by grace alone. All of these things are things that I accept as true. But Bart says the movement of understanding is coming to see that they're not just true as matters of fact, they're true as matters of necessity. It's not just that they happen to be true, it's that they must be true. And because they must be true, we have to start with them as the sort of anchoring realities from what from which we begin in all of our thinking, in all of our activity, in all of our speaking proclamation relating to others, and so on. Um, so let me try to give just a little more substance to that. Um, Bart ends up thinking that theological truth claims are fundamentally different from all other truth claims because properly understood, or when we move into understanding, when faith moves to understanding, these truth claims, in a sense, take possession of our minds and don't give us any possibility to imagine their opposite. Hmm. So I ex I accept that the sky is blue. As a matter of fact, this is something that I take to be true. But it's entirely possible for me to imagine a world in which the sky is orange. It's entirely possible for me to imagine a world in which the sky is yellow. This is true as a matter of fact, but it's not true as a matter of necessity. And because it's not true as a matter of necessity, I have a certain kind of freedom in relation to it. Hmm. I can imagine the alternative. I can tell people that something else is the case. I could, in some sense, live my life as if the sky weren't blue. Now, that's a kind of trivial example, but I mean, there are this applies to basically everything else that we know. And it's a point that's really kind of psychologically important for us. Um, I take it as true that love is a real thing in the world, that I love my wife, that my wife loves me, that I love my kids, that my parents love me and so on. I think love is a real human phenomenon. But of course, there are people who would deny that love is a real human phenomenon. They mm -hmm. would say that, um, you know, all of our behavior fundamentally is selfish or that uh, this is just an illusion d driven by some kind of psychological need or whatever. So I accept as true that love exists, but there's no necessity to thinking that this is true. And it's entirely possible for us to live as if it's not true. And in my own view, some of what goes wrong in human life sometimes is that people live as if it's not true. They live as if love is an illusion or they um, they hold themselves back from the reality of love for fear that it might be an illusion. And so we can develop a lot of crippling ways to relate to ourselves and to our world, to each other and so on, by virtue of the fact that there are things that seem true as fact, but not as necessity. There's no necessity to thinking that love is a real thing. Because of that, we have a kind of freedom in relation to it. And if we exercise that freedom, it can lead to kind of crippling forms of human life. Hmm. Now, what Barr wants to say about the movement from faith to understanding is that it's a movement that eliminates our freedom to think that something that uh, Christian truth claims might not be the case. So, for instance, you know, I take it as I take it as true as a matter of fact that justification is by grace. Another kind of thinker might dispute that and might claim a certain a certain freedom in relation to that claim or a certain distance from that claim or might just dispute that any theological truth claim is 
well, or any theological claim is true at all. This kind of person asserts freedom in relation to this idea, and they therefore give themselves space to live as if they're not true. But Bart says that when faith moves to understanding, what we see is that these things must be true. There's just no way of thinking ourselves out of a world in which justification is by grace, or there's no way of thinking ourselves out of a world in which God is Lord, <laughs> or Christ is risen, or so and so on, and so on, and so on. And for Barth, that's a really profound statement about the kind of freedom that we have and the way that we live in the world. Instead of starting with our kind of empirical selves, with the anxieties that we feel, the fears that we have, the experiences that we've had, and so on, Barth says, if you start with those things, you're always going to end up with partial pictures of reality. To get a full picture of reality, what you have to accept as necessary, what you have to accept as the thing that you cannot think yourself away from, is the reality of God, the resurrection of Christ, the reality of grace, and so on. The movement from faith to understanding is a movement into the depth of the truth of these things so that they take possession of your life. They become the anchoring realities from which all of your thinking departs. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Um, my next question I was going to ask you was how, how would you put this to a student that would come to you in this class, but would do your class and ask questions about theological rationality. But I feel like uh, the description that you just gave was so accessible <laughs> that I feel I feel both challenged by it. And I feel like uh, anyone can grasp onto this and and use it and and see the goodness in it. So so thank you for that. I'll have one more question for you, and this is just uh, just a fun one. So you're off the hook here. But the, uh, the question is, uh, it's a good old game of desert island. Uh, so the idea is you're trapped on a desert island and you can have one book by Bart, uh, a primary source, and uh, one book about Bart, any secondary source. It's just a fun way to get book recommendations. Um, <laughs> which two books are you taking and why? Mercy. <laughs> and you can't say all of the church dogmatics. If it comes in one, one single text you can uh specific volumes but yeah it's kind of cheating to say the whole thing this is a terrible thing to say on a podcast that in some sense is meant to spread and encourage the reading of bart but i my my first thought in response to this or my first response to this question is a kind of shudder of horror the idea of being stuck on a desert island with um, no, I mean, I, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek. I can, I can say that I really enjoyed and felt enriched by my experience of reading Bart, but I can also say that it has been a number of years now since I read Bart with any regularity. And when I've gone back to him for teaching purposes, for one thing or another, I, I find I get impatient with it fairly quickly. Uh, I, you know, I, I think maybe stop repeating yourself or get to the point already or, Stop being, you don't need to be so heavy-handedly polemical. Schleiermacher is not the devil. Uh, that sort of, so, um, yeah, just what, just what from Bart one would want to have on a desert island that one would not get really quite frustrated with. Um, do you know, I think for all that it's a text that on one level I get frustrated with really quite quickly, I think I might just take his Romans commentary, the, the first kind of great book that made a name for him. On one level, it is a, I find it something of a frustrating text because it is kind of repetitive and he has really one big idea about what he thinks Paul is saying and he just finds a way to repeat that 
almost regardless of what which Pauline text he's commenting on. But it's also a text that emerged from a period of extraordinary kind of creativity in his life. And it's extraordinarily open-ended just because he is still such a young thinker in a lot of ways. And so there are still things he will say all the time that just surprise you. And, and yeah, no, I mean, take you by surprise uh, and aren't kind of wholly systematized and buckled down and tied into a neat bow. So as much as the repetition can get tiresome, there will also always be surprises that push you to think in new ways and that, uh, yeah, are just, can just be stimulating and sending you off in a new direction of your own. Um, in terms of a secondary work on Bart, I mean, it. it's a sort of old hat cliche amongst... Bart scholars love to complain about other Bart scholars. Uh, one thing that you will hear Bart scholars say is that there's nothing duller than reading a kind of secondary work on Bart as opposed to the original. You know, the original is exciting and alive and so on, and all of the life seems to escape seems to disappear from the thing when it's commented on in a secondary way. So I think actually, if, if I may, I may just cheat and say that um, my own sense is that the most interesting kind of scholarship on Bart is, uh, I mean, fits within a genre that, that people kind of loosely call thinking with and beyond Bart. Mm. There's a whole group of people who kind of function on these terms and, and say the kind of project they're doing is an exercise in thinking with and beyond Bart. And so they end up having a kind of constructive conversation with him rather than just commenting on his work. So for the sake of my own sanity, I think I would be tempted to choose a book that kind of works with and beyond Bart rather than commenting on Bart himself. Um, and on that front, I mean, there, there's no one who, maybe I shouldn't make so blanket of claim, but I mean, there are few at least who, who rival the depth and sophistication of Bruce McCormick's work. I think I I think I would be inclined to actually just take his new Christology volume, uh, the the humility of Christ. Yeah. Um, it's it's a magnificent piece uh, of thinking with and beyond Bart. Um, I, I just have a great deal of admiration. There there is a will to clarity and a will to honesty in McCormick's work that I really admire. Uh, even if even where one disagrees with his judgments, one one cannot help but be impressed and inspired by his desire to be as clear as possible and as honest as possible in, in what he thinks fits together and doesn't. So I think that would be a rich text to take to a desert island, I think. Awesome. Well, Dr. Westholm, thank you so much just for taking the time to, to answer my questions and really um, even kind of steer away and actually help me personally kind of grasp these concepts. So, uh, it's been really beneficial to me and I'm sure uh, anyone listening will, will really appreciate it as well. Well, I hope so. Thanks for your time, Corey. It was fun to revisit Bart and some of my own thinking about him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, again, for the listeners, the book is entitled The Ordering of the Christian Mind, Karl Barth and Theological Rationality. Dr. Westerholm, thanks again. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Karl Barth Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review in your podcast app. It will help others find the show. And if you have any feedback or questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is at Bart Podcast. That's all for me now. I'm excited to keep learning with you all, and I appreciate you listening. See you next month.